Welcome to Hillside Baptist Chapel's weekly Bible study. Please join Dr. Steve Wood every week where we can all collectively grasp a better understanding of God through His Word. This podcast will be published every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Contact information is as follows. Dr. Steve Wood, Pastor, phone or message at 6438-6541, email at Steve rwood002 at gmail.com. Prayer requests can be sent directly to hbcprayerlist2020 at gmail.com. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Wednesday evening podcast. We're certainly glad that you're meeting with us and thankful that we're able to do this. It's the second best thing to a Wednesday evening service, I guess. But um, anyway... Uh, thank you for uh, joining us tonight. We're going to be looking for the next uh, two or three weeks on an education and ethics from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 through 7. We'll be looking at chapter 5 tonight. And um, uh, one of the things that the Apostle Paul was telling this church about was the problems that were going on in that church. They had some, some real bad problems. And uh, we'll talk about those as we get into it. But let us have prayer as we uh, get into tonight's study. Father, we thank you today for your blessings. We thank you that you're ever present with us and that you're guiding us in the things that are needed. And I pray your blessings on our people tonight. Help us as we meet in our homes that we will be able to worship you and that we'll be able to understand things that are needed in our lives, and I pray your blessings on this study. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first of all, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 13. He says, Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. When it comes to church ethics, God sets the standards. We don't. It's not our obligation to meet together and and decide, well, now this is something that we need to uh, do or uh, that's something that we don't need to do. Look at the scriptures. Look at the Bible. Look at what God has said. He is the one that we need to take our instructions from And he's going to show us the right things to do. He calls us to proper behavior 
right living, and godly conduct. As we look at this particular passage of Scripture, there are several different things that I want to point out here that the Apostle Paul has said to the Corinthians. And we will look at that in just a moment. Immorality, sexual sins. This is the topic of tonight's reading. Now, most of you know that in recent years, the Roman Catholic Church has been riddled with scandal and charged with collaboration in numerous accounts of child abuse by the clergy. Victims who were sexually abused as children by their priest have come forward to say that the church leaders knew of the abuse and yet refused to do anything about it. Are silent church leaders any less guilty than the abusers themselves? Verse 6 that we read a moment ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? The Apostle Paul levels a charge of conniving sin against the Corinthians. With the knowledge of the Corinthian church, a man was still publicly enjoying an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. It's a grievous sin that even the pagans themselves would not put up with. The church had done nothing about it. In fact, the apostle here describes their attitude as arrogant. Once again, he's calling them arrogant. What we have in this passage are solemn words of instruction. First, he wants his readers to understand what it means to be a church. The blood of the Passover lamb has given us a distinct identity as God's covenant community. That's what a church is. The moral standards to which God has called us are different than the moral standards that prevail in culture. Not only that, but the way we treat church members who compromise those standards is different than the way that we would treat those outside the church, those that don't belong to Christ. When flagrant sin has been committed and when there has been no remorse or repentance by the individual who committed that sin, as seen in what we looked at today, the church's first reaction should be grief. We see that in verse 2. We hardly need explosive, self-righteous tyrants. We need tears. We're called to grieve. The power of sin can destroy the fellowship, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And it can hurt a church's identity in the community. Grieve we must. And with that sorrow, we must also exclude the guilty person from our fellowship. This is an act of hope. By handing the man over to Satan, as he says in verse 5, by removing that individual from the protection and privilege of belonging to the church community, we pray fervently that this new vulnerability this sinner is experiencing will renew a fear of God 
and ignite repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus. Now, church discipline is rare today, probably because we're confused about our responsibilities, maybe. And maybe we don't know the biblical commands about it. The case from 1 Corinthians contains several elements to guide a church to know what to do and how to do it. First, this man's sin was deplorable. Second, he was continuing in that sin publicly and shamelessly. Now, we don't need to be scouring each other's lives to find places of moral failure. But when there is shameless, unrepented, and public sin in our church, there must be an action taken by the church. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. We're not going to take time to read that tonight. But that gives us further instructions in the process of church discipline to know how we're to take care of this. And we're not in a situation where we need to do anything like that, or I would read those verses and we would be very careful not to do something that we shouldn't do, but at the same time to do everything that we're supposed to do. Now, I've called this an education in ethics. The word ethical is foreign to some church members even, some preachers. Ethics, conforming to the standards of conduct as given for a profession or for a group, is what ethics means. When it comes to church ethics, as I said a moment ago, God sets the standards in that. He calls us to proper behavior, to right living, to godly conduct. It's quite evident that the Corinthians weren't living up to God's ethical standards. Let's consider this affair that was going on at the Corinthian church. He said, there is sexually immoral affair in the church among you, he said. This case is actual and factual. It had become the talk of the town. You see, even people outside the church were talking about it. A man living with his stepmother was considered by the Old Testament as something heinous, something terrible. Look at modern day churches and you'll find all types of immorality going on that's not dealt with. The tragedy is that many young people and even parents act as if it's no big deal. Let's move on to what was going on here. As we see this church tolerating this particular sin. A professing believer acting every bit like an unbeliever. Now, it's not uncommon today for a bride to have children out of wedlock as they get married. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't perform marriage ceremonies for individuals like that. 
But I'm saying that there ought to be a repentance on the part of the individual who is guilty of the sin. And that many times is not taking place. That many times is not what's happening. What's happening. And, and mom and dad sit there as proud as peacocks of their daughter who is dressed in white getting married. God forbid that a preacher raise his voice and refuse to ask God's blessings on that sort of marriage. Now, like I said, when repentance takes place, 2 Corinthians tells very explicitly what they're to do as that individual repents and that individual is sorry for their sins. This individual, this very individual that we're talking about here tonight did that. And then the church refused to take them back. Now, that's not what God is wanting from a church either. Now, the church is showing indifference in what is going on here in Corinth. It's not a question of the activity being something that is not known. It was a glaring sin. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the church should have been grieving instead of proud. And evidently they were showing everything but grief in this situation. Notice verse 2. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship that man who has been doing this? The obligation the obligation that church had, verse 5 says, hand over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Be careful here. Discipline belongs to the whole church, not an individual or a select few in the church. At issue here is the restitution of the individual, not personal revenge. You see, as this sin takes place, the church is responsible for taking care of the problem and not just letting it slide. But it's not talking about how people act outside the church. He makes that very clear. Remember how Jesus treated the woman at the well? She was an adulterer. And the woman taken in, taken in adultery. They were both unsaved people. And he tried to reach them and did reach them, of course, didn't he? Someone said that surgery is always better than an autopsy. If someone is hurting the cause of Christ and the witness of the church, the church must act and must perform surgery. Otherwise, the church could die. This is not simply to throw stones, but to save a soul. He uses the illustration of yeast here, the principle of evil. Paul wanted the evil removed. And he's telling them not to associate with that individual who is living in sin. 
That's what discipline is all about. Not to associate with that individual in the church that has caused this problem. And it's for the purpose of evangelism that we might be able to reach individuals with the message of Christ. With a glaring sin in the church, people are not going to listen to us. They're not going to believe our witness. We disassociate ourselves from those who are committing that sin. But what we see today many times is that we disassociate ourselves with those on the outside. And that's not what the Lord is telling us to do. Jesus didn't isolate himself from unbelievers. These individuals had a part of his ministry. He tried to reach them. And he did reach them. Does discipline work? Well, all we have to do is read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says here that punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. This is true in our day and time as well, as an individual is excluded from our fellowship. And then they repent. We're to receive them back. We're to welcome them back. Because this is what God demanded. This is what God is showing in His Word. Well, next week we're going to be looking at the judicial dispute that was in this church. You see, this church had several problems. <laughs> and um, uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of more of these as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. Thank you again for joining us tonight. And tell others about our Bible study if they don't know. And um, we'll be glad to include them in our podcast. Until then, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again tonight for the blessings you've given and for this opportunity to meet together. And we pray your blessings on each one that's listening to this podcast tonight. And help us that we will have the right attitude toward all that are in the church. And Father, we pray that things like this that happened in the Corinthian church won't happen in our church. I pray your blessings on each one. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay tuned for a short weekly editorial with Face to Face with Dr. Fred. Today, I'm going to give a poem by Myra Brooks. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. I know you've probably heard it many times, and I've memorized it. But you know how it is. You stand before people, and all at once, that thing you know you know by heart, all at once, it goes away. You got stage fright. Well, I got it in front of me, and I'm going to read it and say it at the same time. It's a great poem. The touch of the master's hand. T'was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it was scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folks, he cried. Now who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar. Then two, two, oh, only two? Two dollars. And, and who'll make it three? 
going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, now, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars! A thousand dollars! And, and who'll make it two? Two thousand! And who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered. But some of them cried, we do not understand what changed its worth. And quick came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like this old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once. He is going twice. He is going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's Hand. This concludes HBC's weekly Bible study. Please join us every Wednesday for Bible study at 7 p.m. Thank you and God bless.